Now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here with you. I would like this morning to begin with a different parable, or that was not a parable that Mackenzie just read, that was just the gospel. But I want to read a parable with you, and I have included it in your bulletin in a little handout. I believe it's printed on a purple sheet. So I want to start there, and then we will continue on. Feel free to read along. Or if you'd like, just listen to the story. This is not uh, from the Bible. This is just a, a fictional story, a parable. Here we go. One day, a small group of disciples who had embraced the way of Jesus early in his ministry heard him preaching by the side of a dusty road. And as they crowded around, they heard Jesus say, The law requires that you carry a pack for one mile, but I say, carry it freely for two. The disciples were deeply impressed by these words, for at that time a Roman soldier had the legal right to demand that a citizen carry his pack for a mile as a service to the empire. This teaching not only allowed the disciples to turn this oppressive law into an opportunity to demonstrate kingdom values, but also it presented them with an opportunity to suffer in some small way for their faith. As it was common for soldiers to evoke this law, the small band of believers soon developed a reputation for their actions. Roman soldiers would often hope that the citizens that they asked to carry their packs would be among these disciples, and often a small bond of friendship would develop between a soldier and these followers of the way. And after a year had passed, this custom became so established in the group, that it became a defining characteristic of their shared life. The leaders would frequently refer to the teaching of Jesus 
and emphasized the need to carry the pack of a Roman soldier for two miles as a sign of one's faith and commitment to God. It so happened that Jesus then heard about this community's work, and on his way to Jerusalem, he took time to visit them. The leaders eagerly gathered all the members of the group together to hear what Jesus would say. Once everybody had gathered together, Jesus addressed them. Dear brothers and sisters, he said, you are faithful, you are honest, but I have come to you with a second message, for you failed to understand the first. Your law says that you must carry a pack for two miles. My law says carry it for three That's interesting, isn't it? Right in the beginning, Jesus said, carry the pack for two miles. And now he says to people who've been carrying the pack for two miles, hey, you didn't get what I said. I bet there were some confusion. If this were true, there would be some confusion there. One thing that I love about this little parable is that even though these believers don't understand the deeper meaning of what Jesus had said, which means they missed the point, the parable portrays Jesus as one who still commends them for being faithful and honest. Isn't that what we've seen in Mark thus far? Disciples who are, who are missing his key teaching, they're missing the point, and yet Jesus treats them as loved ones, and he cares for them, and he stays with them. It challenges our sense of what it is that's most important, doesn't it? That, that piece right there. They're incorrect. And yet Jesus calls them faithful and honest. Sometimes we think about correctness as the, as the most important thing. The other thing that I like about this parable is that it reminds us how we can often do violence to God's Word, treating it as though it's a mere textbook or as though it's an instruction book for life. If you're like me, you grew up and heard that very unashamedly. This is God's instruction manual for life. And so I learned to sort of mine the Bible for instructions or specific answers. But when they heard him say, carry it for two miles, they, interpret, they interpreted that what Jesus meant was that obeying him would mean carrying the pack for two miles. This is what I would call a two-dimensional or a flat reading of the Bible or of Jesus. He said two miles, not just one. Okay, now we're going to do two miles like he said. We're good. But Jesus said, you missed the point. I wasn't inviting you to obey my instruction. I'm inviting you to obey my freedom. With that simple instruction, I was teaching you to open your heart and to truly love your neighbor as yourself beyond expectation or custom, to do a lovely thing for another. Now, haven't we been feeling this tension, the same sort of tension as we've walked with Jesus and his disciples through Mark's gospel so far? He's offering his followers a new way of life, a new wine, if you will, that will not fit into old wineskins. And the experts of the law are really irritated about it. It looks like their love for obedience has killed their love for people. 
So today's passage in Mark chapter 14, and if you're still there, stay there. If you're not, feel free to turn there now. This passage kicks off uh, the beginning of the greatest love story in, in all of human history. So if you think of Mark as this sort of drama that's unfolding, today we enter the third and final act. This will be called, in our tradition, the passion narrative often. So 14 through the rest of the book is the passion narrative, and we start today. So let's begin in verse 1, and I want to walk through it a little bit more slowly. This is the same passage that Mackenzie read. Now the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming or plotting to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people might riot. Okay, you've got two separate feasts that have sort of been sandwiched together at this point in uh, history. They had previously been more separated, but by the time we get to Jesus, you've got Passover happening in the spring, right around mid-April, okay? And then direct, that's a one-day event, and then right after that, you have a seven-day event, which is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Every Jewish male within 15 miles of Jerusalem is required to go to Passover. Now, that's just the men. They'd often bring their families, and that's just the hardline requirement But the Jewish people had developed a tradition, I don't know that it's dissipated even to today, which is kind of a pilgrimage mindset of having a Passover meal in the holy city. So while you were only technically required if you're within 15 miles, every Passover you had people from every country in the world coming to celebrate Passover meal in the holy city. So this was a major, major deal. All of your lodging, your hotels and motels and everything were free by law. They couldn't be charged. Uh, So you had free places to stay, but even the walls of the city couldn't hold this crowd. So we're told that they would camp out around the city and then stay in places like Bethany or Bethpage and that kind of thing. Massive crowds, which is why they say, but not during the festival or the people may riot. Historically, riots would burst out of massive, massive gatherings, and so they're nervous about it. What else does that teach you that they know? They know that the people kind of like Jesus. They don't want to take this guy who's become very, very interesting and popular, and lots are sort of coming around from all over the place to hear his teaching. They can't just yank him. So they're like, what are we going to do? We're in trouble. Well, let's go to verse 3. While he's in Bethany, Bethany, think from where we are to Mount Tabor. That's about 1.9 miles. Bethany is about 1.5, so it's not even that far, so it's a short walk. They're up in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. And a woman came with an alabastron, an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, and she poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? You could kind of hear them, are you kidding me? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. Some of your Bibles say 300 denarii. That's good. That's accurate. A year's wages is that. They could have given this money to the poor. And then they rebuked her harshly. 
They rebuked her harshly. How could you say that? Are you dumb? Are you ridiculous? Do you have no compassion for people? What is this extravagance nonsense, you know, that harshly, intensely they hurt her? Colleen, could you put that slide up? Here's an alabastron. There's a couple different, couple different versions. Some are carved out of stone, alabaster. Others made out of clay, terracotta. That's the one on the left. By breaking this open, this would be a common way to carry stuff. Those little ears on the side, you'd pierce a hole through and then hang a string so you could carry it around your neck or loop it around something so it wouldn't get broken. You'd just use it like another jar, but if you broke it open, the custom was, this was a statement of, we're using all of this stuff right now. You know, I'm not saving the cork. We're going to drink it all. That's that kind of idea. This is all for you. You can almost hear her humming that song as she's walking up to Bethany. Jesus, I love you. Oh, how I love you. You are the one my heart beats for. You know how we sing that song? It's like that attitude there. I want you to think of where this woman is at because she's the example today. You can pull the slide down now, Colleen. This is the story about the last kindness that Jesus will receive before he goes to his death. It's the last act of kindness. There's only one other sign of affection in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is going to receive before he dies, and that's a kiss, and it's a kiss from Judas. So it's a sign of affection in an oddly defined way, okay? <laughs> like, I love you so much, I'm going to betray you so you die, you know? That's not very affectionate. So this is genuinely the last goodness that somebody will give to him. This is it. And here they are sitting at a table, a table of fellowship. Jesus' ministry operates around tables, doesn't it? If you ever are in a spot where you say something like, man, I just don't have what it takes to do evangelism, and yet you live somewhere and you eat with some frequency, uh, I would say that that's like, like holding a pen in your hand and saying, I don't have anything to write with. Your dinner table is a powerful evangelism tool. Well, here's Jesus. As we have seen throughout his story, he's inviting people into table fellowship. There he is. So imagine them. They're not sitting at chairs like we do. Their table's low. They're lying on the ground, probably leaning on their elbow. Their, their head is closer to the table. Feet are away. Uh, and they're hanging out around this table, okay? And she comes in. It would be customary if you were the host to put a few drops of perfume on your guests as they come in. Just a couple drops, but that was nice. She's not the host, though. She's coming in, and we never do find out her name, but she comes in with this alabaster jar, and in the Greek, it tells us it's worth 300 denarii. That's quite a bit of money. A denarii is about a, a day's wage for your average day laborer. We knew earlier in Mark that they were planning to feed 5,000 men, probably the equivalent of 10,000 plus people, for 200 denarii, okay? So 200 denarii buys you a meal for more than 10,000. This, this little jar of nard was worth uh, more than that. It's a big deal. And the people in Jesus' presence, we also don't know for sure. He doesn't say. We, presumably, it's the disciples. There might be a couple other people around there. 
but we know that they are not cool with what she does. This is ridiculous. Why would you spend money on unnecessary earthly beauties and worldly pleasures when we still have missions work to do? That is irresponsible. That's bad stewardship. I think we need to just admit it that we are all conditioned in such a way that we can relax when things feel sensible and practical and, and, and then when things start to feel extravagant, we get really irritated. We don't even like to talk about extravagance. It's just not the way that we're supposed to live. Almost as though extravagance in and of itself is always, always ungodly. Don't do it. Why would people who love a beautiful God and who love his beautiful creation also like to make beautiful things happen? That's just crazy. (laughs) Isn't that odd? We love a God who provides, who's beautiful, who himself is extravagant, and then we say, but that's just for God. We're not supposed to be God-like in that way. That's just his deal. It's like we want to follow him in every way, but not like that. If he says walk two miles when you're only required to walk one, that's okay. We'll, we'll do that because Jesus said to do that, but walk three? No, he didn't say that. He just said two. We don't walk three because that time could have been used for something more practical. And you can almost hear Jesus whisper. You, 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 would, think, you would think on that example. He would say, I'll walk two miles with the... With the Soldier, not three, because I need to dedicate that time to ministry. And I could hear Jesus whispering and saying, that is ministry, silly, you know? Pay attention here. The disciples are throwing down this bad stewardship card. Why are you wasting this on Jesus? That gives you a little bit of a clue, too, as to how they saw Jesus. They saw that this was a waste. Why are you wasting this on Jesus? You could have sold it and done something better than just dumping it on this guy's head for some temporary honor. Give me a break. Look, don't kid yourselves into thinking that you don't agree with them. I think we all instinctively agree on this point. I think that's kind of the point here. We all know that in Jerusalem and in Bethany and Bethpage and and the countryside around them, There were children who were starving. There were people without shelter. There were lots of people who had a very difficult time finding clothing, who had experienced loss and famine. The needs around them were plethora. We know that. That's true. And yet here again, Jesus surprises us with the way he responds. This is an extremely uncomfortable passage for anybody who's interested in social justice work, working with refugees, homeless, working with poverty-stricken people in the world, you read this and, you say, and you're like, I'm there with the disciples. I'm like, 50 grand worth a year's wages? Are you, whew, that, couldn't you have done something better than dumping perfume on your head? You know, come on. It's an extremely difficult passage for anybody whose life or family was touched by the Great Depression. That time in our country's history taught us to save, to be extremely cautious, to do spending only on the most necessary and practical things, and and that was a good thing. 
It's not that that was bad, but it ingrained something into our psyche. But we need to let waste and responsibility be defined by Jesus, not by our world. Jesus is watching this happen. It happens to him, and he doesn't call it a waste at all, does he? That helps you see how much more we need to get our hearts and minds aligned with Jesus. He does not think this is wasteful in the slightest. He doesn't think that this is, he's not like, hey, hey, cool, you're doing something stupid and irresponsible, but we'll give you a pass because you mean well. That's not what he says. This is an amazing moment. Put yourself in this woman's shoes. You're standing there. You're about to snap the neck off of that alabastron. You're about to break it. It's filled with a substance worth more than a year's salary. Let's just say 50 grand on average. It's worth more than $50,000. You're holding it in your hand. Surely she thought deeply about what she was about to do before she swung that baby down and broke the top off. I guarantee she was like, okay, are we going to do this? But even though she thought that, now I'm, I'm guessing, it doesn't tell us this, but whatever it was that she felt by way of hesitation, that was overwhelmed with a greater love. Her hesitation was based on the lesser loves, but the greater love was love itself, and it overwhelmed it. The reigning thought or motive was her love, and it lifted her up above custom above tradition, above what would be called careful and sensible and practical. And it shocks all of us. It's a shocking moment in the gospel. The author of that story that we read, the opening parable, his name is Peter Rollins, he writes this. He says, what if Jesus was not offering his followers an ethical system to follow, but rather he was inviting them to enter into a life that transcends ethics, a life of liberty that dwells beyond religious laws. Well, the disciples saw her action as unethical behavior. And just when you'd expect Jesus to say, good job, boys, you got it, she really is being bad, instead, Jesus does the opposite. Verse 6, leave her alone. Jesus says, why are you bothering her? Your NIVs will say bothering. Other translations might make it a little more intense. It's more intense than bothering. It's, it's why are you harassing her or why are you giving her such a hard time that it's harming her? So I want you to feel a weightiness in what Jesus says. Why are you hurting this woman? And now notice what he says next. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Here Mark says, she has done a lovely thing to me. She's done a lovely thing. Now, using his Greek language, Mark has two different options for talking about love. One is agathos. And so agathos or agathos is, is the sense of goodness that is bound very tightly to morality, to be good. And then there's another word, kalos, which is to talk about something uh, that has a loveliness to it. It carries a certain charm. It carries a certain aroma or attractiveness. You're drawn to its loveliness, okay? That's the word 
that Jesus uses here. You can be agathos or good and yet also be very hard or stern or painful or intense. We all know of times and experiences in our own life where we say, oh man, that was excruciatingly difficult and painful, but it was good for me. You see, goodness can be ugly in our appearance if it's accomplishing something very good. But when a thing or an action is kalos, which is the word Mark uses here, it is particularly lovely. One 19th century church historian named Gavin Struthers said that it would do the church more good than anything else if Christians would sometimes do a bonny thing, something fine, something attractive. And that is what this woman does here in the dining room in Bethany. As William Barclay says, love does not only do good things, love does lovely things. Let's finish our passage here, starting in 7. The poor you will always have with you, Jesus says, and you can help them anytime, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand for my burial, or she anointed my body beforehand for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him some money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand them over. Interesting, isn't it? You see how the text does something very similar to the last one we looked at where it opens with an idea, betrayal, plotting to kill him. Then there's a whole different theme and then it ends with the sense of plotting and betrayal. That's that chiasm kind of way that they literarily structure it. And he wants to emphasize a major contrast between love and hate. One thing that this does raise is, what is Jesus saying about this? There will always be the poor around you. And I want to say this. We can be crystal clear in knowing that Jesus has not said, don't worry about the poor. They'll always be around, which means that's a problem you can't do anything about. Don't even worry about that. He's not saying that, and I've heard people interpret it that way. I don't think that fits with the message of Jesus throughout the whole gospel. I do believe Jesus says to us here and elsewhere that we can never solve the problem of poverty and hunger in the world. It doesn't seem from human history and where we're at now that that's something that we can solve. But that's not to say, therefore, don't be present in it and working toward good within that dilemma. You follow what I'm saying there? It's important that we don't take Jesus' words here as sort of this abdication of our responsibility. He says there's going to be a lot of time to keep doing that good work. So he's not saying don't do that. So I think we would be misreading this passage immensely if we read it and think, well, I guess that he's saying Jesus is more important to care for than the poor. Okay? Okay? That's how we could read it at a, at a cursory glance. 
Oh, Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 those are the poor people, but I'm here right now. So I'm the one you want to be focused. You see, this beautiful thing that she does, or this lovely thing that she does, is not intrinsically better because she did it for Jesus rather than some other person. Jesus will use this language elsewhere. You give a cup of water to somebody who needs it, you're giving it to me. He's not diminishing other people. The loveliness is based on the occasion. It's in her sense that this is the time to anoint the king and prepare him for burial. She sees something in the life of Jesus that even the disciples can't really grasp yet, and that is he's going to die. Verse 8 says, She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. She anointed me beforehand to prepare for my burial. This is something that has actually caused discord and dissension in the disciples' ranks. They, don't, they can't fathom it. I think that's why Judas betrays Jesus. He is, this is not the Jesus that he agreed to follow in the first place. He agreed to follow a Jesus who would do something different. But here again, the Bible shows us how this woman does grasp it. She gets it. And Jesus wants her example to go on to teach all of the church throughout all of time. That's pretty good. And Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, what she has been doing here, what she has done, will be told in memory of her. You'd almost expect him to say, in memory of me. He says, as you talk about the good news in this world, the euangelion, the gospel, always include the story of this woman who brought the alabaster jar. I think it's because she's got it. She's got that Jesus creed heart. Lord, how I love you. Oh, how I love you. My heart beats for you. Jesus wants us to see this specific woman and learn from what she teaches us to learn from her good example. She steps into a role, by the way, only reserved for men. You maybe didn't catch that, but there is no possible way that you should be anointing a king, especially the king of the cosmos, the king of creation, if you're not a prophet or a priest. Those are the men's roles. So here she comes, uninvited to a dinner, and steps in as the role of prophet and priest and anoints the king of the universe. That's a profound moment. God saw fit to have a woman step in and bless the entire gospel-believing church by breaking with that tradition, stepping out of those old wineskins kinds of expectations and becoming a prophet and a priest. Is she not prophetically predicting the death and the burial of Jesus? Just for this moment. And she anoints the king and prepares him for burial. Jesus wants us to see her example and remember it forever. And what is the essence of his teaching through her example here. What do we learn specifically by remembering her? Well, we've already noted the chiasm. We've already noted that it opens with evil and hatred. Then you have verses three through nine are all about this unbelievable, extravagant love. 
And then it follows up with hatred manifested through betrayal and further plotting to kill. One of the things that we're supposed to see in her is a picture of that greatest commandment being lived out. It's all for you, God. It's all about you. Hate can be easily distinguished, sorry, disguised. Hate can be easily disguised as loving concern for the Bible. Wasn't that crazy? It was the teachers, we're told in Mark. It was the experts of the law, the ones who knew the most about the Bible. Men and women who walk around proclaiming that they have the Bible all figured out often don't get, a, get along well with Jesus or with other people. Why? Because that kind of attitude is an attitude that's not actually very interested in God or in his Bible. They worship a different God called personal correctness. This is the God I bow to. Personal, I am correct. And they will sacrifice almost anything. They will kill relationships. They will sacrifice churches. They will sacrifice almost anything to that God of personal correctness to honor this idol. Genuine devotion doesn't matter. Correct devotion does. Genuine worship outpouring to God doesn't matter. Correct worship matters. And there's rarely a love for God himself as he is. Instead, it's a love, it's a love for me. It's a love for how correct God can make me and for what God can do for me. I love God's power. I love God's sovereignty. I love God's omnipotence. I love it because of how he can advance my cause. He's going to be great for me. Isn't this surely at the heart of Judas's betrayal? Jesus never did submit to what Judas was looking for. Now, we don't get a lot of insight into Judas's motives in the book of Mark. We're told in John that Judas was a swindler. And he was pilfering the the pot, if you will, the the money that they were gathering. So there's a piece of this that could just be base-level greediness. He wants the cash. But surely it's much deeper than that. Mark doesn't even talk about that. We know in church, our church tradition is held that Judas was a zealot. He's one of those guys who really wanted a warrior king. And Jesus has now systematically dismantled the idea that the Messiah was going to be a warrior king. And I think Judas is fired up about it. Judas had named it, and he claimed it. But Jesus was not delivering what he wanted. He wouldn't be who Judas wanted him to be, and so he threw him out of the way. But this nameless woman, by a stark contrast, does the exact opposite. She's thankful for Jesus, as he is knowing full well that he's about to die. That's a big move. That is a big move to sign on with a leader that's about to get killed as a criminal. Okay, That's what you call trust. You trust in what Jesus has said. Because by all rights, this doesn't look like it's headed somewhere profitable. And as this woman recklessly abandons the parameters of what is sensible and, and practical, Jesus calls her actions lovely. Her love is true. And when love is true, 
when love is really real, you break the jar and you pour it out. Rather than carefully conserving it drop by drop. Commenting on this passage, one writer says, if love is true, there must always be a certain extravagance in it. It does not nicely calculate the less or the more. It is not concerned to see how little it can decently give. If it gave all that it had, the gift would still be too little. There is a recklessness in love which refuses to count the cost. Verse 14, 8 said, She did what she could. She anointed my body for burial beforehand. Doesn't that remind you of the woman who gave the two widow's mites, the two leptas beforehand there? She gave everything that she had. Isn't it interesting how Mark chapter 13 is bookended by these two women who are giving all of what they have to Jesus and it's surrounded by this chorus of well-meaning disciples who don't get it and vicious experts in the Bible who think they get it and they don't even, they're even worse not getting it. But here's these two pictures we see. St. Jerome said, I have this I think on the front of your bulletin, way back in about 400 AD, he said, just as the grain of wheat, unless it falls into the ground and dies, it does not bring forth any fruit. So also, unless the alabaster jar be broken, we cannot spread its fragrance. Love has eyes to see when there is only one chance to do something. The occasion here, she sees it. How utterly tragic is it when we are moved to do a fine thing for somebody else, to do a bonny thing, to do a lovely thing, and we talk ourselves out of it because we've got something else that's more important. That's a great tragedy. Or we don't do it because it's not correct, according to some human standard. Often our impulse to love somebody generously and extravagantly with a trusting abandon will get silenced by that more prudent and practical and sensible voice inside. And we don't even need to go grandiose here into, you know, man, if you love somebody, you buy them a Ferrari, whatever. They, I'm not even saying that. To go beyond the requirement, to go beyond an expectation, to step into that freeing love of God freely, to not only take that Roman soldier's pack the required one mile, but to take it doubly far, two miles, and then to hear Jesus remind you, why stop at two? Why don't you go for three or four if you like? You have the freedom in Christ to be that kind of person. Whatever you think you're going to lose, believe me, it's not much. And what you're going to gain is the essence of love right in your soul, a transforming power. It's a free gift he gives to us by inviting us into this way of life to give that extravagant gift, one that you yourself created for somebody else. I mean, we're coming up to Christmas right now, yeah? Thinking about making, building, writing, doing something for your loved ones, your neighbors around you. What neighbor do you have in your neighborhood you haven't talked to much? Bless them with something beautiful and good, a fine meal at your home, inviting them in to table fellowship. 
to write that letter of encouragement. There's a woman here at CB I was talking to just a week or two ago. She was talking about this idea that she had to start writing letters to the other women in the community with a real pen that has real ink on actual paper. You, can, it's, you guys have paper. We can still use that stuff. It's more meaningful and intentional than just the mass email, isn't it? To receive something beautiful. That would be a Bonnie thing. What a world. What beauty we could see and experience here in our church. And elsewhere, if we took on the character of this woman who broke the alabaster jar, who acted without certainty, who acted without security, who acted totally outside the bounds of what was correct on an impulse because she knew that this, this was her chance. She had one chance to anoint the king and prepare him for burial, and so she took it. And just imagine how Jesus felt in that moment. Jesus' feelings in that moment are probably not unlike the feelings of most human beings in this entire world, including you and me. A feeling that the world has rejected him. A feeling that he's out of line with everybody else. A feeling that he is ultimately dying. What is this for? He is sitting there in pain as people are betraying him, accusing him, lying about him. Two days more, he knows he's going to be killed. Imagine the depths of pain and suffering that this man, Jesus from Nazareth, was experiencing when this woman stepped into the room and said, oh, how I love you. You're the one. A person who is trusting God for real enters his life and builds him up, builds Jesus the Christ up by doing a lovely thing without reservation. And there we have it. As Jesus faces certain death, the shadow of the cross looming larger every moment, but he's not He's not saying, oh no, oh no. He says, I know, it's coming, but the gospel will go forth forever. He's looking ahead to what's happening after death, saying, when this gospel keeps on going, i.e., it's not going to end with my death, when the gospel keeps going, keep telling this story about this woman. He faced death, and yet you see this sense of peace in him. What a way of life. Taking joy in other people. What a way of life it would be for us to take on her heart. Taking joy in the unique and wildly diverse ways that people worship God. Encouraging them to worship God with a certain abandon and extravagance instead of, don't be worshiping God that way, it's incorrect, you see? Instead we say, let's step beyond that and let love raise us up above the lesser love of correctness into the freedom love of the Savior. The kind of liberty that allowed her to break that alabaster jar. When we do such lovely things, we become the aroma. My friends, we will become the aroma of Christ in this way. Our Savior Jesus, who himself had first to be broken before his pure life could be poured out for all of us. Before his pure life could be spread to all of humanity 
Unless the alabaster jar be broken, we cannot spread its fragrance. Love does lovely things. Pray with me. Jesus, to walk with you in this world is insane. It, you twist us around and you flip us upside down and you shake us up and then you give us the most warm-hearted hug we've ever felt. Keep shaking us up, please, as an entire congregation. Unsettle us if we've settled into roots, uh, ruts of correctness. Help us to see your holiness and the invitation that you give us to be in this amazing life that you lived. A life where as this woman was breaking all of the rules, religious rules, even rules that had biblical support, you yet commended her. You wanted us to see something in her devotion to you. Help us to see it. I ask today that you would help us to see it and help us to live it out. Help us to become a community that embraces and lives this abandoned love, this extravagant love. Help us to be a people who is always doing a lovely thing here in Portland. Amen.